0: Hello and welcome back to Current Account, I'm your host Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as some of the most important current issues in international finance and economics, with a little bit of political economy thrown in there. And sometimes I try to look at what's happening with US politics and policy angle on these different issues. This week, I want to talk about the Nigerian presidential elections, which took place on February 25th. I'm very excited to welcome Mvemba Fezo-Dizalele, who is the senior fellow and director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington, D.C. He is also a lecturer in African studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And prior to CSIS, he has had a number of positions, including being the Africa senior advisor for the International Republican Institute. Mbemba, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me, Clay.
0: So let's start off with a little bit of context for the presidential elections. So the current outgoing president, Mohamedou Buhari, is stepping down after serving two four-year terms. So he came into office in 2015. I'm gonna cut to this a little bit, he's not exactly leaving a great situation for whoever was running for office. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what's really kind of going on in Nigeria and what were the main issues that you think were driving the presidential elections before we actually talk about who the winners are and some of the controversies.
1: Nigeria has been at a tough place for the last um, 10 years or so. And uh, this was, of course, much more noticeable during the Buhari years, because Buhari is actually a reformed dictator, if you want. He had served as a military leader in the 80s. He had staged up the coup, and he was very stringent. He was very tough. He made uh, anti-corruption his mainstay of his time when he was in office. He really tried to rectify the course of Nigeria back then, So after he left and he tried to be president for a number of times, more than uh, four times, I think, he tried to be president, didn't make it, eventually made it in 2015. People expected maybe they will see the old Buhari will be very strict, bring corruption into under control. That did not happen. I think age played a certain role in this, and um, he was just more of a laissez-faire in the best case scenario. And in the other scenario, the other extreme, people just told he didn't surround himself with the most competent people. And the result was, as the world was going through pandemic and economic shocks, and Nigeria itself was facing insurgencies, I mean, Boko Haram, I mean, ISIS, I mean, various forms, including IBOP in the South, as well as just the friction that uh, we know Nigeria to have the north versus the south, christian versus muslim, herdsmen versus farmers, and the entire oil industry which in Nigeria always needs much more transparency for it to work. Buhari just did not rise to the uh, to the plate. He just didn't step up. He didn't rise to the occasion and that was disappointing.
0: Okay, so let's think about now you're going forward and there are three major candidates for president which you can go through. What were they running on? And then what were the results that we found after February 25th?
1: Nigeria, as I said, has been stuck in a bad place for a long time. Nigeria is the largest economy on the continent. But I like to say Nigeria, in spite of all the talent that Nigeria has, Nigeria is a country of 200 plus million people. It's the most populated, not just the largest economy, but it's the most populated as well. It's a country full of talent, full of skills, but it just never, for a long time, it's not reason to become a consequential economy on the continent. And I like to say personally, my Nigerian friends may not like this, I like to say Nigeria is the world's largest inconsequential economy. So it's just not produce the kind of gravitas that an economy that size should produce for the continent. The people who are running, by that I mean, Bola Tinubu, who was a former governor of Lagos State, Peter Obi, who was a former governor of Anambra State, and Atiku Abubakar, who was a former vice president of Nigeria, as well as a fourth candidate, Rabiu Kwankaso, who's a former governor of Kano. All of them were running because they want to bring change at different levels. Obi is the youngest, Peter Obi, that is, is the youngest of them, he's 60 years old. And he was much more connected to the younger generation. Nigeria, just like every other African country, has a young population. The median age on Afri- in Africa is 19 years. Obi particularly was able to seize on this discontent, lack of jobs, economic hardship, the weakness of the Naira, which is the, uh, the currency as well as just the corruption that has been plaguing Nigeria. The it change. We know that a few years ago, last year and the year before, we've seen this youth mobilization, which culminated on what we call end SARS. This is what people have been trying to change. People had expected that somebody will articulate their grievances into a political campaign agenda. Uh, and the person who did that the best was Peter Obi. The others, they did it at various levels. Tinubu, of course, is with the, the party that, that is in power, that is exiting, but retaining power now since you won. The result was this big movement that Nigeria has not seen in a while, with an insurgent candidate who's Peter Obi. It drew a lot of uh, young people, particularly everywhere you want. However, once the results were announced, Peter Obi only gathered um, 25.4% of the vote. Atik Abubakar got 29, and Tinubu got 36.6. So there was a bit of a gap between the expectations, what we read in the polls and what we saw being declared by the Electoral Commission. Now the problems, we've read that there have been a lot of irregularities. And when I say irregularities, that's an understatement. There have been violence, literally people snatching ballot box, Gunmen showing up at polling stations, electoral officials showing up late. And when we say late, we mean really late, showing up at noon when the vote was supposed to start early in the morning, and people just not being able to find their names on the list and so on. So, this has been fraught with all kinds of irregularities that make it challenging for the declared winner because one, he only won with 36.6%. That's hardly a mandate. Okay, so you actually kind of got a little bit towards my next question,
0: which is, we have heard about these irregularities that you mentioned, and I guess for a contextual point of view, I mean Nigeria basically kind of became a republic. That's probably not the legal term, but in 1999, and so there have been some elections since then, and and the elections have had problems in the past. I guess the big question is, were the irregularities are they just that you had problems with the electoral commission you had problems with people not showing up or is it more of a problem of fraud where you had the governing party candidate one you mentioned there are people stealing ballot boxes so that's more fraud as opposed to not someone not showing up could be either and the two candidates Peter Obi and Abu Bakar have basically said they think that they want to challenge the results. There have been some talk about we should just do a do-over. Now, I'm not sure that's even legal under the system. I assume that they could challenge the results in the court, in the Nigerian courts. But so how do you see all that? Is it irregularities, fraud? It's a little bit of both. And how do they take this forward in a way that doesn't end in either? Chaos or a
1: revote, I guess? There are two two sides to this story. On one level, everybody observed the elections, international groups, IRI, NDI, European Union, and so on, and local groups as well, the local Nigerian groups that observed the elections. Everybody agrees that the elections were deeply flawed. These are all different terms to say the same thing, literally, deeply flawed. In In other words, the process did not work as people expected it to work. The INEC, the Independent National Electoral Commission, fell short of the expectations. That's one side. And those groups will say, including the State Department, which says there were some irregularities, but there were not enough massive fraud to change the result. So the U.S. government has congratulated Bola Tinubu on his victory. Then when you talk to other groups, particularly supporters of Peter Obi and supporters of Atiku Abubakar, they'll say there probably was fraud. Now, the challenge with fraud, it's become much more legal. Then you have to go to court to show that they were fraud, right? So Peter Obi's team, and I think Atiku's team, has already announced that they will challenge. You said that, Clay, at the beginning of this, this conversation. It behooves them then, then to show the court that fraud indeed took place. That's a much more technical and legal area. We will wait what the court sees. We'll wait what these teams put together as the case as they go challenge it. Both actually are going together, right? The technician is saying there were a lot of irregularities. They were flawed. But that those flaws were not enough to change the result. The uh, political leaders and others are saying there were massive fraud. And if there were massive frauds all across the country, what does that mean? That's a legal determination that the court will have to make, whether we'll see something similar to what happened in Kenya back when the court decided they're going to have a rerun, or what happened in Malawi, where two years within the incumbent uh, second term, the court called for another election. We don't know. Nigeria doesn't have that record. Yeah, there's nothing in Nigeria history since 1999 that shows that the court have reversed an election, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. So all eyes will be on this adjudication and how it unfolds.
0: That no, That's actually very clear. I mean, and it's clear, but it's difficult. So let's go down a couple different scenarios in some respects. All right. One scenario actually is about what actually happened in the election. And so... There were polls that were put together. You've mentioned kind of this enthusiasm for Peter Obi. You had a lot of people register to vote. I think that I've read that 93 million Nigerians registered to vote. And I've been told by experts that this isn't like registering to vote in the United States, where it's actually a fairly easy thing to do. It's kind of hard to do. You got to go through a, a decent process in order to register the vote. So once you register, you would think, okay, now my incentive structure is I've done all that. The whole idea is to vote once you've registered to vote, but turnout was very low. So even though there was this enthusiasm for Mr. Obi, this third party candidate, we had a 29% turnout rate for the vote, which is actually lower than the United States. And the United States is one of the, usually one of the worst turnout rates of any country on earth on, on presidential elections. So I guess a couple things. Did the polls just get it completely wrong and misunderstand where Obi's enthusiasm was? And so, you know, and that can happen in that, like, you're not polling the people that live in the rural villages or you're not polling the people that live up north in Nigeria and he doesn't get much support up there. And so you're overtaken by polls that are in maybe Lagos or something. The second question, so that's one question, is what happened on the polling? And the second question is, why did they have such a low participation rate Obviously, you could say, "Well, we had a low participation rate because the participation rate was much higher, and there's some fraud going on, or you just had a low participation rate because, you know people would rather have not been out that day, it was raining, whatever. I mean, so anyway, I, that's a lot to ask, but what do you think?
1: For sure, there was very low turnout, not the one that uh, observers had uh, expected. A couple of things that's happening. Uh, I'll start with the polling, and then we can talk about the law turnout. The challenge with the polling is it's not clear if they really reflected the reality on the ground. For one reason, that all those polls had a very high level of undecided. That was already a flag, a red flag. If you have a large percentage of people saying they're undecided, then your poll is not telling you exactly what you need to do. And then B, Nigeria does not conduct exit polls in the way we do in the U.S. So you actually also don't get a sense of, people told you kind of things at that moment, what they will do at that moment, not the day of the elections. Since you didn't catch them after the election, you also don't get a sense of what it really do. There have been some issues with just the structure of those polls and how they were conducted and the type of question they asked. But also what I said, the largest number of undecided, particularly that. If people are being undecided, people say they're undecided, they're obviously either hiding something or they're still holding out until the last minute to make their the choice. That's one element. And then, two in, in terms of the turnout, this also is connected to the uh, the polling as well, the polling uh, the polls that we saw. People are questioning the number, the original number of ninety three million. You know, we take that at face value that somebody said INEC or somebody were ninety three million. We accept that, and then we say only twenty four million showed up. Therefore, there is a problem. Yes, there is a problem, but the problem may be with the number itself. We have a problem with numbers in the United States. This is part of everything that happens, whether it's conspiracy or fake news, where people think the dead did rise to come and vote, right? And here we try to curate our database, our voter registry quite regularly. Nigeria is not known to do a good job curating the database. In other words, technical experts who look at this believe the 93 or 87 million number is actually much more inflated than the reality of the, the voter status today, the number of, of voters that's actually out there. B, uh, the, a set of reasons that can determine a low turnout. It's low. I don't know why it's low. We are still studying that. But one, if you go up north, Buhari is a cult like figure. People really veneer him up north where he comes from. There's a cult in the sense like just Buhari fans, Buhari supporters. Those guys may not vote for anybody else. So it's quite possible that there's a large number, a big segment of people who didn't show up to vote at all. That's one. B, with all the challenges that we mentioned, what I call irregularities and flaws within the system, people starting late, taking their time, the violence, it's quite possible that some people decided, I don't want any part to this. I waited enough, I have to go back to work. I cannot afford to spend my full day just waiting for this guy to show up. Then you have the other element of the young people, in spite of their mobilization, that I'd shown, not just in Nigeria, but across Africa, a lot of them don't want to vote because they don't think the vote matters. They don't think it changes anything. So a lot of them may not show up. The other thing is people also want... They vote to count. By that, I mean financially. People want incentive. People want, this is where we talk about vote buying. People come and pay people to go vote. Somebody says this is an event that happens once every four years. It may not count in the ballot box, but I want to make at least $50 from this or, or whatever, a bag of rice, whatever it is. And we know this time because of the redesign of the Naira. There was not a lot of money circulating for vote buying. There was a lot of limits to that. There's an entire spectrum of issues that could have driven the number down, including, of course, the inflated number itself. We're not necessarily calculating the margin in the right way. But then all the other elements, and these are just some elements that I mentioned that may have also deflated it. To what extent? I don't know. But those are elements that we cannot dismiss. Thank you. That's actually extremely helpful. So, all right, now let's go
0: a different direction. So, forward leaning or forward looking, I should say. So, Bola Tanubu, former governor of Lagos, some people call him like the kingmaker in Nigeria, has now become the president. Now he's he's seventy years old. He's got a young populace, as you mentioned earlier. The economy has had trouble. There is corruption problems. The International Standard Body for Anti-Money Laundering has just put Nigeria on a gray list because of concerns about them. Even though Nigeria is an oil producer, they have energy problems all the time there. So things have not been very good. So Tanubu is inheriting a lot of headwinds as opposed to tailwinds. So I guess a few things. One, maybe in the short term, what has the market reaction been to this kind of uncertainty that's happened here? From the markets or the econ perspective and secondly what can tanuba do to put nigeria on a better path going forward so that some of these problems that i just was mentioning and some of the ones you mentioned earlier are at least mitigated if not addressed
1: it's not very clear how the market have reacted fully in part because the market have been kind of tepid vis-a-vis nigeria already over the last several years because of the insurgency because of some of the problems you just mentioned mismanagement in the oil sector. A lot of the major oil companies actually seeking to exit Nigeria. The political side did not particularly add more. We saw that last year, the last code of 2022, the growth rate was downgraded for about from 3.8 to 3.2, I think, or 3.1% going into this year. So Nigeria has not been shining necessarily. The reaction, I think, at best is mitigated just because of It's already been accounted for, I think, with an entire year of violence, of this political campaign. But to come back to Tinibu, Tinibu, you know, there are a lot of allegations of corruption about him. Some Nigerians even question his age. You know, officially he's 70 years old. Some people, you only talk to Nigerian analysts, when they add up things, they say, he cannot be 70 years old, he has to be at least 80. There's all this, you know, when you deal with this kind of thing, I am not a Nigerian. I don't know, but when you talk to analysts, Nigerian, they, they all this doubt about his age. One thing that they don't doubt about is his argument as a political leader, as a political machine guy, right? In fact, in Lagos, they call him the Jagaban, which is like the all of all, right? He's, he makes things happen, and his track record back when he was a bit younger, when he was governor of state, uh, Lagos State, is he was able to improve a lot of the services in Lagos. So this is part of how he got his traction. He also was able to surround himself with highly competent people, and those people were able to deliver. He was able to place some of those same people he surrounded himself with in high key positions, people like Fashola, who was governor of Lagos and did well in Lagos. There is that element. The hope Will be that the same people who were around him who were pushing for change in Lagos will follow him to Abuja and help him deliver for the change that people are expecting. However, we also need to remember that Atiku, Abubakar, Peter Obi won, the're winning. So there the also movement that in Lagos, Peter Obi won, I think 55 percent of the vote. That's a huge Mandate. That means the young people of Lagos want change. If Tinubu is the you know the sharp political observer that they say he is, I don't think he will be oblivious to that. I think he will take that into consideration. At least these competent people that he surrounds himself with will take that into consideration to ensure that they respond positively to the grievances of the population, and that may be a good thing. I think it's a good thing for Nigeria. Now, how will he do? Tom will tell us, but I think he has a track record of surrounding himself with some sharp mind and highly skilled
0: people. That's actually fascinating. Very, very helpful too. So let me maybe call it an exit question, but is, I think you know this too, and I know you served in the US Marines. So from the United States perspective, if Tinubu is the president, does that change how U.S.-Nigerian relations are? So you mentioned earlier Nigeria is the biggest economy in sub-Saharan Africa, largest population, probably by far, clearly a very important country in the region. What do you think of U.S.-Nigerian relations and or does it affect U.S.-even African relations going forward?
1: You know, Tinubu lived in the United States huh, for, for a number of years. so he. He knows America. He lived in the United States. He has a degree from one of the universities in the Chicago area. The relationship with the United States as it stands today is actually pretty good. In fact, it's very good. The um, trade is doing well. Large Nigerian community in the United States. The creative space, music, film, the uh, digital space, You know, Google and all this stuff. Business in the United States want to do business with Nigeria. You are to be in Nigeria then Ghana. Why be in Cote d'Ivoire if you can be in Abuja or in Lagos? So it's always been a prize that U.S. investors look at through various lenses. Because Tinibu is very sharp when it comes to businesses, you know, they accuse him of making his money by skimming some of when he was doing the change. Those are the allegations they have in back, because he's very wealthy. He's supposed to be very wealthy. Business is something that is very, He's also a, you know, a very sharp businessman. So the value of trade will always be there for Nigeria. But the relationship is very good. Recently, just a few days ago, the U.S. Embassy had announced that they were leading, they were changing, streamlining the visa process for Nigerians who want to come to the U.S. That is something very important, and I think that will continue. This just happened a few days ago. That's a signal itself that the US is extending its hand even further into Nigeria to do change. Okay, Mbemba. Thank you very
0: much. This has been very, very helpful. You've given us a lot, and I appreciate you taking the time to spend with us. now it is time for the three, two, one. These are the three things that I've learned in my conversation with Mbemba, two things I'm looking forward to, and then my one sports fact of the week. So my three main takeaways from the conversation with Mbemba were, first, that Nigeria's presidential elections held on February 25th are still controversial, but there does seem to be a declared winner Bola Tinubu, and we'll have to just see whether or not that controversy continues to boil. Second, Tinubu, assuming that the controversy dies down, has uh, inherited a lot of problems. And the question is, is whether or not he can actually address particularly some of the economic issues and the concerns that were raised by young people who are frustrated by what is happening in Nigeria. And third, and I thought it was a good point that Mbemba made, which is Tanubu surrounds himself with competent people. And that might be a good sign for Nigeria, both in terms of the economic issues I just mentioned, but also in terms of its foreign policy with the United States and with other countries around the world. The two things I'm looking forward to. First is something we didn't really talk to Mbemba about, which is the governor's races that will be taking place soon in Nigeria. They've postponed them very recently. And the reason they postponed them is because of the irregularities we did discuss. Can the governor's races, and November was pretty clear, three of the top four candidates have been governors before. So governor is clearly a stepping stone within Nigeria. Can those governor's races be put together in a way that's more competent and stable than what we saw in the presidential elections? And second, I think I do have to say we should be looking forward to what's going to happen in the courts in Nigeria. Because clearly, Peter Obi and Abu Bakr, the second and third place candidates, are continuing with their court cases against what happened in the presidential elections. My one sports fact of the week is related to what will happen the day before we put this podcast out, which is the announcement of the NCAA brackets in both men's and women's college basketball. This time, I want to talk about women's college basketball. So there are a lot of different stories, of course, but the two that I think are most interesting are first is the number one team in the country, which is University of South Carolina Now, the University of South Carolina won the national championship last year. They have a winning streak of over 30 games and they're probably the most dominant team since about five years ago when the University of Connecticut seemed to be unstoppable when they won over a hundred games in a row. Can this number one seed, which is by far the only undefeated team in the country, dominate like they've done all year and win the tournament? The second is the number two team in the country, which is Iowa. Now, I say that because Iowa clearly has the most interesting individual, if not the best player in the country, and a woman named Caitlin Clark. She is the first person ever in college women's basketball who led the league in points per game 27 and assists per game 8.3 so she led the whole country in that she's the fastest person in the last 20 years man or woman in college basketball to reach 1500 points but maybe what's interesting is that her team iowa is not south carolina it's not the university of connecticut and it's not university of tennessee and the other powerhouses of women's college basketball the last time Iowa made the semifinals, not even the finals, but the semifinals of the college tournament was over 30 years ago. So Caitlin Clark has a lot to work on, but it kind of does remind you in sports, sometimes you have a great teams, sometimes you have a great individual. Let's see which one of those wins in the end. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you the listener. We can be reached at podcast at iif.com. You can get all of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And once more, let me thank Mvemba Fezo Dizalele for his very helpful comments and thoughts on the Nigerian elections. Thank you very much and have a great week.